with such a long passage? Because it is a long passage. Um, the song is incredible. Let's read it and, and maybe I'll sing the song to you. Maybe I'll read it so that you'll be safe. Um, after Ehud's death, remember Ehud last year? My friend Ehud, the, the Greenpeace, non-partisan, never hurt to fly kind of guy who goes in, takes the tribute of Israel into the tyrant King Eglon who has been oppressing the people for 18 years, walks in, he's left-handed, the king thinks fine, he says, I've got a secret thing for you. The king says, oh, what is it? He says, it's from God. The king gets up really excited and Ehud goes, stab, and out come his guts and it's stinky and smelly and he escapes and Israel wins a great victory by the Lord. My friend Ehud, okay. If you want to hear that sermon, it's on the website. Um, So Ehud dies the second judge. There is a third judge who gets one verse in chapter 3, Shamgar, son of Anath, rescued Israel. By the way, that word, Anath and Shamgar, they're not Israelite names. This guy is probably not even an Israelite. And yet God used him to rescue Israel and he once killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, um, which is just a farming implement with a piece of, go around the neck, yeah. A bit of metal on it, it's sharp if you sharpen it up. But 600 men is pretty handy. Anyway, so we get one verse of him. He's, he's not that interesting a judge. So let's move on to after Ehud's death, Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. Remember what we've seen over the last two weeks there. There is a cycle in judges. The Israelites do evil. God sends a punisher. The Israelites cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. And then Israel is even more sinful against God, and the cycle repeats, and the cycle repeats, and the cycle repeats. So this time the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, he ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. By the way, wouldn't you hate it if you were Lapidoth men? Very much in your wife's shadow. Israel, uh, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She was a prophet and she would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites would go to her for judgment. And one day she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. And there I will give you victory over him. And Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you. But you will receive no honor in this venture because the Lord's victory will be uh, over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. And so Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. And at Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, uh, had moved away from the other members of his tribe, and he'd pitched his tent by the oak of Zanaim near Kadesh. And when Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called all of his 900 chariots, iron chariots, and all of his warriors, and they marched from 
Harosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River. And then Deborah said to Barak, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. And so Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into the Kishon Valley. Into battle. And when Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. And Sisera leapt down from the chariot and escaped on foot. And then Barak chased the chariots and all the enemy all the way to Haroish Hagoyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors, and not a single one was left alive. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with the king of Hazor, Jabin. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. Please, give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. And so she gave him some milk from a leather bag and she covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes and asks you if if anyone is here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand and she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground and I love how the Bible adds this and so he died and when Barak came looking for Sisera Jael went out to meet him she said come I will show you the man you're looking for and so he followed her into the tent and he found Sisera lying there dead with the tent peg through his temple And so on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. And on that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang the song, Israel's leaders took charge and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. I'll read it to you. Listen, you kings. (laughs) Pay attention, you mighty rulers. I will sing to the Lord. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you set out from Mount Seir and marched across the fields of Edom, the earth trembled and the cloudy skies, they poured out rain. The mountains quaked in the presence of the Lord, in the God of Mount Sinai, in the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and in the days of Jael, people avoided the main roads and travelers, they stayed on the winding paths. There were few people left in the villages of Israel, until Deborah rose as a mother for Israel. And when Israel chose new gods, war erupted at the city gates, yet not a shield or spear could be seen among 40,000 warriors in Israel. My heart is with the commanders of Israel, with those who volunteered for war, praise the Lord. Consider this, you who ride on fine donkeys, you who sit on fancy saddlebags, you who walk along the road, listen to the music village. Uh, village musicians gathered at the watering holes. They recount the righteous victories of the Lord and the victories of the villages in Israel. And then the people of the Lord marched down to the city gates. Wake up, Deborah! Wake up, wake up, wake up and sing a song. Arise, Barak! Lead your captives away, son of Abinuam. Down from Mount Tabor marched the few against the nobles. The people of the Lord marched down against the mighty warriors. They came down from Ephraim. Uh, a land that once belonged to the Amalekites. They followed you, Benjamin, with your troops. From Maker, the commanders marched down. From Zebulun come those who carry a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah and Barak. They followed Barak, rushing into the valley. But in the tribe of Reuben, there was great indecision. 
Why did you sit at home among your sheepfolds to hear the shepherds whistle for their flocks? Yes, in the tribe of Reuben there was great indecision. Gilead remained east of the Jordan. Why did Dan stay home? Asher sat unmoved at the seashore, remaining in his harbors. But Zebulun risked his life, as did Naphtali on the heights of the battlefield. The kings of Canaan came and they fought at Tanakh in Megiddo Springs, but they carried off no silver treasures. The stars fought from heaven. The stars in their orbits fought against Sisera. The Kishon River swept them away. That ancient torrent, the Kishon, march on with courage, my soul. And then the horses' hooves, they hammered the ground, the galloping, the galloping of Sisera's mighty steeds. Let the people of Meroz be cursed, said the angel of the Lord. Let them be utterly cursed because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty warriors. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. May she be blessed above all women who live in tents. Sisera asked for water. She gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him yogurt. And then with her left hand, she reached for a tent peg and with her right hand for her workman's hammer. And she struck Cicero with the hammer, crushing his head with a shattering blow. She pierced his temples. He sank. He fell. He lay still at her feet. And where he sank, there he died. From the window, Cicero's mother looked out. From the window, she watched for his return, saying, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't we hear the sound of chariot wheels? Her wise woman answer, and she repeats these words to herself. Ah, they must be dividing the captured plunder with a womb or two for every man. There will be colorful robes for Sisera and colorful embroidered robes for me. Yes, the plunder will include colorful robes embroidered on both sides. Lord, may all your enemies die like Sisera. But may those who love you rise like the sun in all of its power. And there was peace in the land for 40 years. almost feel like I don't want to preach. What a great chapter. And I think we have to do both together because it's very rare to have a story, a narrative form of an event, and then a, a song or a poem following it. The, the other great example, of course, is after Israel has crossed the Red Sea, the song of Moses and Miriam. And they just burst out into praise for God, and that's exactly what we got here. So chapter 4 is, is the theologian historian speaking, and chapter 5 is the theologian poet singing. And it's just fantastic. I love the, the emotion and the the poem just throbs with God is so good and God is so great. And, and really that's, that's what the whole point of today is. The point of today is that it is God who wins the great victory and it is God alone who provides for our salvation. And yet he uses us. Isn't that incredible? Um, chapter 4, probably written quite a while after this incident happened. This is the theologian, the guy writing Judges, who's looking back, putting it together. Chapter 5 is the song that they sang on the day. Chapter 4 is the reason, and this is what happened, and this is what happened. Chapter 5 is just, God, you're incredible. What have you done, God? This is just amazing stuff. What have we got here? We start off with an un, well, not with an unexpected enemy. We start off with a very expected enemy. 
Chapter 4, verse 1 says that the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This is a, a phrase that you're going to get used to in, in the book of Judges. It's exactly the way that the story of Ehud started. And as a result of their doing evil, God punishes them, hands them over to the Canaanites. Um, the very people whose land God had given them, whom God had said to them, go in and subdue them. The Israelites are now subdued by the Canaanites. And why? Because they have taken on the gods of the Canaanites. The reason God hands them over to them is because they have fallen and taken on these new gods. The, the gods that God specifically said, if you do not get rid of the people of the land, you will be tempted to worship their gods instead of worshiping me. In fact, that's exactly what we see in chapter 5, verse 8. It says, when Israel chose new gods, when Israel chose new gods, war erupted at the gates. And isn't it so true, I think, the lesson of Judges, the lesson of the Bible, that when God is marginalized in our life, um, decline and disintegration is the guaranteed result. Because we will go after idols and they will take more and more pride of place in our lives. And, and you know what? The idols that they were worshipping were very socially acceptable. Worshipping Baal. Everyone worships Baal. That's, oh, good on you. You're worshipping Baal today. I like that. That's what it would have been like. And, and today aren't our idols also very socially acceptable? The idol of success. The idol of, of, of wealth. The idol of... Success in your marriage, success in your life, success in your family, having good kids. By the way, great kids, they're very quiet. <laughs> but is that an idol? You know, idols can be, we, we can have an idol in the church. We, we, can, we can have an idol of serving God. Um, whenever something takes pride of place in our life, that is an idol. When we are more concerned with how people look at us, than with how people look at God, we are sliding into the same temptation and same trouble as the Israelites. And their, uh, their oppressor there is, is a very expected enemy. We're told that they are oppressed by King Jabin of Hazor, um, which might not be a familiar name to you. It wasn't a familiar name to me, but it should be a familiar name to us because if you read back just a few chapters in Joshua chapter 11, we see that King Jabin of Hazor was one of the kings who was utterly destroyed by Israel. In fact, not just one of the kings, he is one of the ringleader kings who tried to defeat the people of God. Um, king Jabin of Hazor called the kings of Madon, Shimron, Achshaph, the kings of the northern hill country, the kings in the Jordan Valley south of Galilee, the kings in the Galilean foothills, the kings of Naphoth Dor on the west, the kings of Canaan, the kings of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Hivites, and brought all of these people together and said, hey, we've got to get rid of these Israelites. They're a nuisance. They're going to take our land. We don't want them here. King Jabin arranged, brought all these people in here. God said to Joshua, Joshua, relax. I'm going to deal with it. And God wrought an incredible victory and all of these people were subdued, and King Jabin himself was destroyed by Joshua, and the city of Hazor was razed to the ground. Not a single inhabitant left. 
the great enemy whom God had defeated. And now the Israelites find themselves facing another King Jabin. It's possibly a royal name, you know, like a royal surname or a title even. King Jabin from a rebuilt Hazel. And the very one whom God gave them an incredible victory over is the one who is oppressing them. Time and time and time again, Jabin's reappear. In Revelation, there's that picture of the people worshipping the beast who looks like he was dead but is alive again. Because every time we think Satan is dealt with and done with once and for all, somehow it just, it just, he just comes back again, doesn't he? And he will until God deals with him finally and throws him into the fiery pit, into the lake of fire. But, but Jabins have a habit of returning when we think we are done with them, when we relax, when we don't take following God seriously, when we think it's all sorted and we don't need God as much, and before we know it, the Jabin is back. And Satan returns. And he returns in this time because the tribe of Naphtali has been negligent. They have allowed the Canaanites to resettle and rebuild Hazel. That verse that we've heard so many times over the last three weeks, if you think you stand, be careful lest you fall. It took 20 years for the Israelites to come to their senses and to call out to God. Uh, 20 horrible years. The, the poem speaks in this, this very poetic language, says that nobody would even dare to walk on the highways. If you wanted to go somewhere, you, you'd walk on the back routes and the byways because you, you just... It's dangerous traveling in that part of the world. Verse 7 of chapter 5 speaks of the whole land being governed by fear and trepidation. And, and it speaks of the community seeming lifeless. And, and Israel is ruled over by Sisera's 900 iron chariots. And in the midst of this, we find a very unexpected judge. We find Deborah, an ordinary woman. I love how the Bible says to her, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth. She's just an ordinary woman. She's a mother. She's a wife. And, and yet, as, as we're told here, she serves as mother to the whole nation of Israel. I mean, she takes the needs of the people to heart. She watches over them. But <clears throat> she is just mothering the nation. Now, I've read interpretations of this which speak very much that women shouldn't use this story to say that they should be leading men. Deborah here is not doing this because the men are too timid and weak to stand up and lead the nation. It's not like Deborah was at home one day saying, Lapidoth, why don't you go and lead the nation? Lapidoth, go and tell them what God says. Lapidoth, go and do this. Now, Deborah was at home, I imagine, one day, and God said to her, Deborah, I want you to be my prophet. In fact, I'm telling you to tell the people this. 
Deborah is not the judge because, she, because there were no men who wanted to do the work. Deborah is the judge because God said to her, Deborah, tell this to the people. We're told that Deborah is a prophet. She's called by God. She's been marked out by God for this task. She's, she's so obviously a godly woman in a godless society. I mean, isn't it obvious from her song? This incredible victory. Uh, chapter 4, just skim through it at some stage. God is mentioned four or five times, but the only person who mentions God is Deborah. And in chapter 5, the song that Deborah sings, it's just all about how wonderful God is. Here is this wonderful, wonderful, godly woman standing up and speaking for God, or rather sitting down under a tree and speaking for God. She's different from all the other judges and judges because she leads not from strength and might and cunning, but from wisdom and godliness. Um, she alone is not a warrior among the judges. But do you know what I find interesting? When the New Testament in Hebrews gives us that hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, and this incident happens in about verse 32, 34 of Hebrews chapter 11. When the New Testament reflects on the heroes of the faith, we do not see Deborah's name listed. In fact, the, the writer to the Hebrew says, I don't have time to go through all the other people. Blah, de, blah, de, blah, de, blah, 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 Barak, blah, 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 blah. It gives a long list. I can't remember all the names. But Deborah doesn't get mentioned. The person who in the New Testament stands at the center of the story as an example of faith is a very unexpected hero named Barak. Now, it wasn't Deborah's idea to call him. It, it was God's idea. God said to Deborah, get hold of Barak. Tell him that he's going to go and win this battle. She comes and she says to him, gather your men. You're going to go to Mount Tabor, which is, Mount is pushing it. It's about 400 meters high. Um, <clears throat> It, it actually forms the boundary, excuse me, between the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. Um, in the Kishon River, where the battle is going to be arrayed, where, where God is going to bring Sisera, is about 16 kilometers southeast, no, just east of Mount Tabor. So this is the field where God is, is setting up the battle. It's probably the dry season when all of this is happening. The Kishon River is one of those, those rivers that you get in, it's like a West Australian river in many ways, because in the height of summer, it's more dust bowl than river. But in, in the winter times, when the rains fall in the hills, it can be flash flood situation. Mighty, mighty river. <clears throat> and we've got this really interesting verse, chapter verse 8, Barak says to Deborah, I will go. And everyone goes, yeah, good on him. But only if you go with me. You go, what? What, what is on with Barak? Is, is he being timid? Is he saying, ooh, I'm a bit scared. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Well, now remember, Barak is our example of what it means to be trusting 
Barak is the example of trust held up in Hebrews chapter 11. What does he do? Why, why is he saying, I will only go if you go with me? Let's think back a bit. The thing which held Israel under an iron grip was the 900 iron chariots of Sisera. Now, don't think of these like tanks uh, which are there to break the enemy lines. These are battle platforms. Uh, you use an iron chariot to chase after and slaughter as many people as you can. And this is absolutely a killing platform. There is no way that 10,000 men can win against 900 chariots. It's, it's just, it's almost, you'd, you'd look at that and say that's suicide. And yet Barak still says, I will go. That's trust, isn't it? I know the stakes, I know what's going to happen, I know the chances are if I look at this pure logically, that I'm going to die, but I'm going to go, and I'm going to lead 10,000 men. So why does he then add, but only if you go with me? Well, maybe, maybe it's a statement of faith. A statement of trust. Maybe Barak is saying, I will go, but the only way that this battle will be at all successful is if God is with us. You're not God, Deborah, but you speak for God, and I need you there because if God needs to say something to me, I need to hear it. You might say, ah, oh, but then what happens next? Verse Deborah says, oh, you naughty boy, you're not going to win the victory over Sisera. Well, no, it's possible to read it that way, but, but it's also possible that, that Deborah says, yep, sure, I'll go with you. Fine, done. Next order of business. By the way, don't expect any glory from this because you're not going to kill Sisera. I mean, how is that for trust? He goes, he does this huge battle. He risks his life. He trusts that God will be with him. He says, please come with me, Deborah, because you speak for God. And he does it knowing that he will not get glory for it. I mean, he gets the glory of defeating the army, but the glory of defeating the king, or not the king, the, the commander, Sisera, goes to a woman. And so he gathers 10,000 men from Zebulun and Naphtali who come down from the hills where chariots aren't much good. And they come down to do battle on the plains where Sisera has the absolute advantage. And it's an absolute statement of trust because you're going to the place where by all logic you will lose. And you're doing it because God says go, you're going to win. Who comes? Well, these 10,000 from Zebulun and Naphtali. We've got people from Ephraim in chapter 5, Benjamin, Maker. Zebulun, Ishachar, um, and then we've got some of the tribes of Israel that don't bother coming. We've got Reuben, who at least thinks about and says, oh, really, I feel so bad about what's happening to you. I really should help, shouldn't I? 
Oops, the kettle's boiling, excuse me. Or their equivalent, oh, oh, is the shepherd whistling for me? And you get some more tribes, Dan and Asher and Gilead. You just can't be bothered. We've got our own things to deal with. Sort yourself out. Oof. Now, if the church today is the new Israel, does the church today act the way of the old Israel? So when the church is being persecuted in North Korea, do we do something about it and join them and stand alongside them when God calls, when God starts doing something, when God starts raising up the church in China? Or do we stand by and go, oh, you know what, I really feel for them. That's so, oh, it must be difficult for them, but you know what, just doing this thing over here at the moment? Or do we even go, ah, I can't be bothered? You know the famous story, perhaps, of, of William Carey, the great missionary to, to China, who went to the English Baptist Convention and put this impassioned plea to them to, to fund a ministry, to take the gospel to, to these people who had never heard it. And if you've, I'm, I'm sure I've told the story before, but if you've forgotten it, this is just one of those lines which I find difficult to forget. An old preacher looked up at him and said, Young man, when God wants to convert the heathens, he will do it without the aid of you or me. That is a very Reuben response. The poem celebrates those who, when God calls, come. And they have this incredibly unexpected victory. Verse 14 of chapter 4, Deborah says, Barak, has not the Lord given the victory to you today? And they race down. And the outcome of the battle is beyond anything that they could have expected. I mean, the the, the chapter 4 just gives us a cold, hard fact. It says, basically, these guys had a, a, a rout They won this incredible victory. They chased them all the way back home. They killed them all. And yes, Israel had the element of surprise, but that's not why they won. The reason that they won is not because Israel was strong and mighty. They had 10,000 men against 900 iron chariots. That's not why they won. The reason that they won is because the Lord God routed the army of Sisera, threw his chariots and his army into confusion, threw them into a panic. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 19 to 23 tells us exactly what happens. So the, the, Israelite for, the, the Israelite forces are coming down the mountain and Jabin's forces under Sisera are there in the valley and all of a sudden what happens there with their military hardware, they're ready to go and verse 20 they find that the heavens themselves are fighting against them. We see that, that there's, I think it's described there, a flash flood that happens. The rain pours down. All of a sudden you've got iron chariots with big heavy iron wheels in the bog. 
in the river and then there's water that rushes down and so many of them are swept away and what's this galloping, galloping of horses' hooves? It's not the chariots galloping forward. It's the horses that have unhitched their chariots which are stuck in the mud trying to get away because they cannot win against 10,000 men. You suddenly don't have 900 killing platforms. You have 900 men versus 10,000 men. You see how God turned the tables? Isn't that incredible? That doesn't happen. That does not happen. And Sisera is left escaping on foot. You see, Barak's forces were no match for Sisera's, but Sisera's force is no match for God's. You have this unexpected deliverance. Sisera escapes, he goes to jail's tent. We've been told in verse 11 of chapter 4 that he was on friendly terms with King Jabin and, and he thinks, oh, at last a place to rest. He's, he's weary, he's battle weary, he's been running for his life, he's tired. He gets there, he goes in, uh, she calls him in, he thinks, ah, oh, she's friendly. Um, he says to her, please, uh, uh, just keep me safe. She gives him a place to lie down, she covers him with a blanket. Oh, oh, can you... A nice warm blanket when you're tired. Oh, He says, give me some milk. No, he doesn't. He says, give me some water. And she says, I'll give you some milk. Oh, lovely milk when you're going to sleep. Oh, You know, the best of milk is soporific, but they used to make a kind of goat's milk drink that was incredibly soporific. The Bedouin. And she goes to sleep. He even trusts her. He says, if you see a man coming... Watch out. Tell me. Or rather, don't tell me. If you see a man coming, don't tell him that I'm here. Now, we already know because Deborah's told us that he's not going to watch out for a man. He's got to watch out for a woman. And he falls asleep and she takes that tent peg. By the way, it was among the Bedouin, it was the woman's job to put up the tent. So the tent peg was her tent peg and the hammer was her work hammer. Uh, I don't know what the modern equivalent would be, but like the blender. I don't know. <laughs> Boy, I'm going to be in trouble when I get home. <laughs> she took up her work tools and she took his life. Premeditated, deliberate, she pins him to the ground. Doesn't make her a saint. Certainly doesn't mean that you should pin people's heads to the ground. It's not a good thing to do, even if they're tyrants. Um, Jesus has dealt with them, and one day there will be justice, and vengeance is, is God's. In fact, that's what God says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But she was used by God, the agent of God's vengeance. But have a look at 4, verse 23. On that day, Israel saw Barak defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. No, that's not what it says. On that day, Israel saw Deborah defeat Jabin, the king of Israel. Oh, sorry. On that day, Israel saw Jael defeat the king of Canaan. No. You got three heroes in the story, but but they're not the heroes. They're not the heroes in the story. This whole story is not 
It's not operating at the higher echelons, is it? You've got the commander of King Jabin, Sisera, fighting against the prophet of God and the servant of God, Barak, and somebody that God uses, Jael. You're operating on that level. But what do we see at the end? We see on that day Israel saw God defeat Jabin. On that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin. And yes, it wasn't a short process. They did have more battles, but victory was assured. Israel was not possibly able to be in a weaker position, but Paul says it well, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. No Israelite in his right senses would have said, we have won an incredible victory today. They would have said, how on earth are we alive today? In fact, that's exactly what they sang. They sang, God, God, you are incredible. God, you have won. 5.31 Lord, may all your enemies die like Sisera, And may those who love you rise like the sun in all its power. See, everything depends on your relationship with God. Are you an enemy with God? Are you one of those who love God? Do we use the life that God has given us to fight him or to love him? Because what we know for certain is that God has already won the victory. It is assured. And though Jabin still come back and back and back, Jabin will be utterly and totally defeated. We have already seen the Lord win a great victory over the great Jabin, over great Satan, over the devil. And all those who oppose God and stand with the enemy. One Thessalonians five, two to three says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night when people are saying peace and safety. And we're strong and we're secure and we have nothing to fear. Then sudden destruction comes upon them. And they won't escape. But all those who switch sides and stand on the side of God's people, like Jael, who is not an Israelite but stands on the side of God's people, because they love God, says the song of Deborah. Those who love God are like the sun coming up in its full strength. And boy, we know how strong the sun is because it makes us hot. And yet this is not even the sun at full strength. A light to the world. Those who love God will rise like the sun in all its power. 
More than that, says the New Testament, will become like the Son in all of His power. Because He is the light of the world. And as Jesus said in John 8, 12, those who follow me shall not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Why? Because God's one. God's one. We can have such an assurance of our salvation. We can have such an assurance of the strength and the victory that 